I have to admit there are some passages of Scripture that we read that when we say thanks be to God, I have to question because they hit us right between the eyes. That is one of them. As we begin together today, I want to share a story with you that is pertinent to our discussion today. Um, as a family, uh, Angela and I got married almost 19 years ago, and while we were living in Spartanburg, we were blessed with two children, both unexpected, but blessings from God. And after the first child, we made sure that we had a vehicle that would accommodate a car seat, because we needed to make sure that we could get our child safely back and forth from daycare to home, etc. At the time, Angela had a car that provided that for us. I had a truck, a two-seater, and I could take my son back and forth if need be. But the problem was we had a second son named Lawson 19 months later. And with that meant that my poor little truck could not take two children back and forth from daycare. And never knowing who was going to have to pick up kids, we had to accommodate, which meant that painfully I had to trade in my truck for a vehicle that would work. Well, since I love my family more than I love my truck, I was willing to do that. And so we began to talk about, well, what should we get? And we, we threw a few things around. My wife threw around minivan, and I thought, minivan? No, not minivan. My life will be over as we know it if we buy a minivan. How about a Honda Pilot? And she said, well, you know, I like those. And, and so we began to look around, and we thought, you know, a Honda Pilot's great. It, it's roomy. It's got a third seat in the back. And not that we were going to have an ark full of children or anything, but we thought, well, if we travel with family, we'll have plenty of room for everyone. Uh, we'll have room if we travel out of town, etc. So that's what we began looking for. And so we did our research and looked online, and I found this Pilot that was about two hours away and decided that I would go to the dealership to check it out. Well, we knew better than to take Angela and the kids with us because two young children were not going to make that a pleasant experience. So I told her that I would venture out on my own and I would check it out and uh, we would go from there. And so I did. I went to the dealership, spoke with the salesperson. They showed me the pilot. It was in beautiful, immaculate condition. The exterior was lovely, beautiful color. The interior looked great. And it was a used vehicle. And we were hesitant about buying a used vehicle because you never know what you're going to get from that. But I talked with the salesman, and he gave us a good price on it. And I said, look, you know, it would really be great if my wife could see this. I hate making a purchase like this without her input. And he said, you know, why don't you leave your truck here? I'll let you drive it home, and you take it back and let her look at it, and you can bring it back. I said, that sounds like an awesome idea. And so I did. I drove it back, and on the way back, it drove great. It was very smooth. I really liked it. It had all these buttons and things to do in it that were distracting. And, and I came home, and Angela saw it, and she came out, and she goes, oh, it's awesome, it's beautiful, I love it. I knew she would love it. That wasn't going to be an issue. But the real issue was, well, before we buy this thing, maybe I should take it to a local mechanic, right, and have them look at it and make sure that, you know, the things that I can't see are working properly. And we had had some issues with one of our cars before, and we had a mechanic that we felt very good about. And so I scheduled an appointment with that mechanic and took the car over and left it with them. And they called me back later to come and take a look at it. And so I did. And when I came back, they had the vehicle up on a lift. And he said, Jeff, I want to show you something. Come take a look underneath the car. And as I looked up underneath the car, I saw rust and corrosion everywhere. The axles, everything underneath the car rusted really bad. They lowered the car back down and he opened up um, 
the trunk or the engine, and he said, uh, this is your timing belt. It's about to snap. Your battery's corroded. And he began to point out all these things inside of the car that I could not see that were in great shape. And he said, you know, if I were you, and if it were me, I would not buy this vehicle. There's too much that needs to be done to fix it. And so I drove it back, praying that it wouldn't, the timing belt wouldn't break on the way back to the dealership. And I went in, and the salesman was ready. He had the paperwork all filled out, ready for me to sign it and walk away with this wonderful car. And I said to him, well, I don't know if you know this or not, but there's a problem with the vehicle. There's rust all over the bottom of it. Battery's corroded. The timing belt's about to break. And he looked at me like I was crazy. No, he said. There's nothing wrong with that car. And I said, yes, there's a lot wrong with that car. Uh, I took it to a mechanic, and he showed me everything that was wrong with the car, and I'm not going to buy it. And he continued to deny that there was anything wrong. And it just crawled all over me because I thought, do you not have any morals? Like, do you guys not know that you're selling a lemon intentionally? And so I called them out on it right there. And I said, you know, I will not do business with a dealership who's going to do shady business. And so I left. And we began our search for a vehicle. And lo and behold, my wife found a Honda Odyssey minivan (laughs) that she absolutely loved and was absolutely in great shape. And yes, my life was over as a young adult. But at least our children were taken care of and got everywhere they needed to go just fine. Proverbs chapter 10 verse 9 says this. Whoever walks in integrity walks securely, but whoever takes crooked paths will be found out. I'm grateful that we took the car to get looked at because I had somebody who knew what he was doing who could look at the things that I wasn't privy to and could really see what was on the inside. And those things that were inside that vehicle did not match the beauty of the exterior. And I also thought it was important to make sure that the salesman knew what was going on if he didn't know. And granted, this dealership was not walking in integrity, and I wanted to be sure that they knew that, and that I knew that, and that that wasn't good business. Because I don't know about you, but when I do business with someone, when I purchase something, or when I... Even in relationships in my life, I want to surround myself with people of integrity. When I purchase something from someone, I want that business to stand by what they put out. And if something's wrong, I want them to make it right. I want them to go the extra mile to fix it if it's not right. Because that's the right thing to do. Because integrity is rooted in honesty and moral uprightness. It's the opposite of taking advantage of someone or twisting the truth or only presenting half-truths for selfish gain. Whoever walks in integrity can sleep well at night because they know that they have done everything to the best of their ability. They've done it the right way. But those who take crooked paths, they always have to look over their shoulder because they know that they are not walking in integrity, and they're hoping that no one will find out that they've been dishonest. And if they do, they're hoping that you won't take action against them. You see, as Christians, we understand that our integrity is modeled in God's character, and we find the character of God listed in the pages of Holy Scripture, in which we learn about the God who has called us, who has claimed us as His own, 
and demands that we live in a way that is holy and just and right. But I find that those who do not have this center of morality develop a morality that seems what's best for them. And oftentimes that morality often leads to cutting corners without thinking twice about it. And I don't know about you, but I find personally every single day our integrity is called into question. So often you and I are presented with situations in which we have to choose how are we going to respond to this? What is the appropriate way to handle these things? I'll give you a, a perfect example that dealt with us this past summer. Many of you know that our family took a vacation. Um, we went on a cruise together to uh, the Caribbean, which was great. And as you can see, I had a wonderful tan that I brought back from it. As we boarded the cruise ship and entered into our stateroom, we began to settle our things. And as we settled our things, I went to the safe to put our valuable stuff in the safe. And when I looked in the safe, I noticed that somebody had left something in the safe. It was this beautiful, immaculate, really nice Apple watch. Whoever had been there before us forgot it and left it in there. Now, it just so happened that my wife had an Apple Watch, and she had an accident with it where it took a, a, a fall, and it landed right on its face and shattered the screen. Now, I don't know if you know this or not, but trying to get one of those things fixed costs just about as much as buying a brand new watch. And we didn't buy the care plan with it whenever we got it. So we were either going to have to eat it all over again, right, or not buy it at all. And because I'm cheap and she's cheap, we didn't do it. But guess what? We found this watch. Finders, keepers, losers, weepers, right? No. <laughs> no. Thank you, Lawson. No. I mean, we could have easily kept it. Whoever left it there knew they'd never see it again, right? We could have turned it in to our steward and said, hey, can you make sure this goes to the, to the family that was here before us? But it's possible that the steward could have kept it for himself. So no one would have known if we had kept it and, you know, she needed a watch. It would have been easy for us to just say, hey, well, let's just keep it. But my son wouldn't let me do it. We turned it in because it wasn't ours. Because that's what you do. It's not yours. And no matter what happens, we are not responsible for what happens when we turn it in. Whether the steward keeps it or gives it to someone else, we have to trust that the folks that are there are going to do what is right as well. You see, integrity, it's about what we do when no one else is looking. And that is the context of Matthew this morning in which Jesus speaks to these disciples and to the crowds about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. They have gathered to hear him teach, and he begins to teach about them. Now, these Pharisees and teachers of the law, they're the religious people of the day. They are the ones who are the observant ones of the law. They are seen as righteous before the people. They follow the law to the nth degree. They even build hedges around the law not to break the law. Pharisees were observant, and in fact, it's believed that their names literally mean separate ones. Separate ones. What separates them from everyone else? Well, it appears that their diligent and faithful practice of the law and the prophets is what does so. 
And these very people who are so observant of the law are also acknowledging the fact that Jesus and his disciples seem to break the law in their eyes and they have no problem calling him out on it at times. So they become critics of a lot of what Jesus has to do. And Jesus knows that they are very intentional in following the law, but he also knows that they present themselves as so much more than what can be seen. So Jesus calls them out, exposing the rust and the corrosion of their hearts. He says to them, Woe to you, teachers of the law and Pharisees, you hypocrites! And he does this over and over again, basically telling them, Shame on you, teachers of the people! What you do and what you teach are in serious tension with the law and the prophets. For instance, they tithed even their herbs. And, well, the Old Testament law did not require them to do such things. Most people would tithe their grain, their wine, and their oil only. But they wanted to be above reproach, and they went the extra mile by even tithing their herbs. But Jesus tells them, you are majoring in miters. You have neglected the weightier matters of the law, the major things, justice, mercy and faithfulness it's as if jesus is preaching from the prophet micah chapter 6 verse 8 he has shown you O mortal what is good and what does the lord require of you to act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your god jesus says they swallow camels and only strain out gnats They've been focused on tithing, but not righteousness, nor being merciful towards those who are seen as unrighteous. You know, in Luke's gospel, Jesus tells a parable about this sort of thing. It's a parable that we call the Pharisee and the tax collector. And he says, one day there was a Pharisee and a tax collector, and they both came to pray. And the tax collector fell to his knees, and he began to look up to the heavens, and he beat his breast, and he yelled out, Lord, have mercy upon me, a sinner. And he repeated it over and over and over again. Not far from him stood a Pharisee who began to pray. And he prayed to God, God, I thank you that I am not like this tax collector. Jesus said, which one went away justified before the Lord? The Pharisee or the tax collector? He says it was the tax collector collector who humbled himself. In addition, Jesus addresses their ritual purity regarding cleanliness. He tells them, you clean the outside of the cup and the dish, but inside they're full of greed and self-indulgence. Blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and dish, and the outside will also be clean. Jesus has run into these Pharisees before. They've had a little argument about ritual purity. They noticed that Jesus and his disciples weren't eating with clean hands. They were not doing the ceremonial cleaning. Now, I have to tell you, this is not about germs, okay? Because if it was about germs, they wouldn't be using bath water to wash their hands before they go and eat. This is about being pure before God. And Jesus knows this, and he calls them out on it in Matthew chapter 15. He says, you think unclean hands is what defiles a person? 
That's not what defiles a person, Jesus says. What defiles someone is the evil that resides in their heart, and that evil comes out of their mouths. That's what makes someone unclean, because out of the heart and out of the mouth come all kinds of evil thoughts and impure things, greed, jealousy, self-indulgence, lust. That's what makes someone unclean. And in this particular instance, Jesus readdresses the issue of purity. He says, it's what's on the inside, folks, that counts. It's not an issue of the cup being dirty on the outside, affecting what's inside of it and corrupting it on the inside. He says, no, it's about what's on the inside, corrupting the outside. He then goes on to say, you're like whitewashed tombs which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead and everything unclean. In the same way, on the outside you appear to people as righteous, but on the inside you are full of hypocrisy and wickedness. Now, in Jesus' day, it was not uncommon for people to go to the graves and to whitewash them, to put chalk on them so they were visible. And the reason why they did this was because they did not want pilgrims who were traveling to Jerusalem from far away to celebrate at Passover to accidentally touch one of the tombstones or to step on the grave. In doing so, they would be deemed unclean. And so they would have traveled all this distance to come and celebrate Passover and they wouldn't be allowed to enter into the temple to even do that because they were unclean. Jesus says to the Pharisees, they look beautiful just like you, but they house everything unclean and even the dead and corruption that exists. Pharisees, there's so much corruption inside of you. He knows that their hearts are not in the right place, and much of what they're doing in front of everyone is really for show at the expense of making others around them feel less righteous and much more inferior. Jesus doesn't mince his words. He's very direct about the truth about what's going on, but he isn't speaking directly to the Pharisees and to the teachers of the law. He's speaking to the crowds and to his disciples, and he is doing that so that they will learn from the mistakes of their religious leaders. Outwardly, it seems that the Pharisees have it together, but the truth is they are really quite a mess, according to Jesus. Jesus is clear that God is not concerned about the appearance that we portray to others on the outside. Rather, he is concerned about what's on the inside of us. He's concerned about our hearts. Every woe that we read deals with something on the outside and the inside of their lives. They swallow camels and strain out gnats. They're taking in more than they're giving out. They're concerned with the cleanliness of the outside of the cup, not what's inside of it. And beautiful tombs don't expose what's inside of them. Jesus is warning them against presenting a righteousness that's not practiced. While others may see such things, God sees everything and will hold them and even us accountable for what we do and even for those things that we do not do in this life. Jesus wants them to know that true discipleship is about integrity. It's about being the same person who's seen in the community and even in the church, even when you're by yourself. 
It's about practicing righteousness, doing what is right, even when there is no one else there looking over your shoulder. And Jesus even warns us about practicing our righteousness before others to be seen by them. He tells us in his Sermon on the Mount, he says, But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Even in doing what is right, God wants us to do so in honoring Him and not receiving praise from those around us. As we reflect on this together today, I wonder, what would Jesus say to you and to me about our own righteousness? Would he challenge us to be more proactive in caring for the needy rather than selfishly holding back? Would he say that the Christian paraphernalia that we wear around our necks or on our shirts or put on the back of our cars, that they, well, are they representative of our commitment to following him? Would he challenge our business practices Or would he point out our unwillingness to forgive someone who has wronged us? Would he call us a hypocrite or even a blind guide for misleading others in his name? What would Jesus say to you? What would Jesus say to me? Proverbs 13, 6 says, Righteousness guards the person of integrity, but wickedness overthrows the sinner. You see, I really believe that Jesus is not spouting condemnation towards the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. John tells us in John 3.16 that God so loved the world he came so that we might know Jesus, right? But verse 17 tells us that he did not come in order to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. Jesus is not there to condemn them. He is there to correct them. He is trying to lead them away from what is wrong to what is right. And his love refuses to let them waller in their sin, and he calls out their misdeeds in order to draw them back into his grace. But the truth is, that decision belongs to them. They could welcome God's righteousness in their lives by admitting and confessing their faults. But doing so would make them look weak in front of a community who thought that they were the religious leaders and had it all together. It would be far easier to continue in the way that they were going, this distorted view of righteousness that boosts their egos. See, I see it like this like a car getting a proper inspection to make sure that all the internals are in good working order. Jesus peers into the depths of our own hearts to diagnose all the things that are in need of repair. Now there may be some rust and there may be some corrosion in places that might cause us to veer off the right path, but God stands prepared as the right mechanic to restore and to repair what needs to be fixed if we are willing to let him. And the good news of the gospel, of the scriptures, is that nothing, absolutely nothing, is broken beyond God's 
You see, for God is the source of all integrity, and we can count on him to heal our brokenness and lead us to walk in ways that honor him with integrity too. And Jesus desires to make his home with us, to live in our hearts, and to help us live into his call in our lives. God cared so much about that that he left the glory of heaven and became one of us. John tells us that the word became flesh and dwelt among us full of grace and truth. And so sometimes Jesus has to speak the hard truth to us to lead us into his grace. He wants our hearts. And he wants our hearts, which are unseen, to complement that which is seen. He wants others, what others see on the outside, to reflect what's going on on the inside. Because the truth is, what's on the inside really matters. Jesus invites us, and he calls us to follow him. And as the prophet Micah says, to walk humbly with our God together. He calls us to take a good look in the mirror and to self-reflect on what are we doing, what is broken and needs to be corrected, and to seek Him, asking Him for His help to help us make the necessary changes that will allow us to walk securely in His integrity. Because God has given us His Holy Spirit to reside in our hearts. We're a work in progress, and he is leading us into holiness as we are willing to be led. And I can assure you that if you allow Christ to reign in your heart, choosing to follow his lead, that you will never have to worry about him saying to you, shame on you, shame on you. Rather, what you will hear from him is his praises saying to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You not only gave your tithe to care for the poor, but in addition to that, more importantly than that, you shared my love with them. And whatever you've done to the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, says Jesus, you have also done to me. My prayer is that together we will allow Jesus, the Spirit's work in our lives, move us into God's character, character of integrity, that what we do in our discipleship, what happens here on Sunday morning, what happens when we are out in the community where others see us, is exactly the same as when we're by ourselves or when we're doing things that others cannot see. Friends, may it be so this day and forevermore. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.